0: welcome to the all of christ for all of life podcast where we equip men and women to be faithful in every aspect of life this week you will hear pastor douglas wilson's talk isaac and ishmael from our audio collection titled christianity and islam amen let us worship the triune god the lord is near to all who call upon him to all who call upon him in truth He will fulfill the desire of those who are in awe of him. He will hear their cry and save them, amen. Sing to the Lord a new song and his praise from the ends of the earth, you who go down to the sea and all that is in it, you coastlands and you inhabitants of them. Let the wilderness and its cities lift up their voice, the villages that Keter inhabits. Let the inhabitants of Selah sing. Let them shout from the top of the mountains. Let them give glory to the Lord and declare his praise in the coastlands. The Lord shall go forth like a mighty man. He shall stir up his zeal like a man of war. He shall cry out, yes, shout aloud. He shall prevail against his enemies. Lift up your hearts. The Lord. Too many, Lord, now trouble me. Those who rise against me multiply. They whisper threats against my soul. There is no help for him in God. I think on all my troubles. But you, O oh Lord, have shielded me. You are my glory and lift my weary head. I cried to God with desperate shouts. He heard me in his holy hill, and I think on that as well. I go to sleep and then woke up. The Lord sustained me through the night. I do not fear. Battalions gathered, the regiments across the way. I slept straight through their thundering guns. Arise, O Lord, the time has come for you to wake. Save me, O God, and strike the foe. You have struck them in the face. You broke out their ungodly teeth. Salvation belongs unto the Lord, his blessing for his people here. We think on this with gratitude. And so, gracious Father, we worship you now through Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, world without end. Amen. Amen. Once there was a young girl who desperately wanted to be popular, but who knew in, her own heart, knew in her own heart that she never would be. She was constantly afraid that the other girls were talking about her in catty ways, and that whenever they were friendly, they must be only pretending. Her parents were dimly aware of this, but thought that it was just part of her personality. She usually sees the downside, they said. But one day, this girl's favorite aunt was visiting from another city, and the dinner table conversation that night turned to school. The comment that started it all was fairly innocuous, something like, and how's school this year? The answer was something like, okay, I guess, but I'm not very popular. This was said in the tone of voice in which it was always said, and which always caused her parents to ask what the others had done to her this time. The outcome of such conversations was usually some shopping on her behalf to try to cheer her up. But her aunt had seen for several years what was happening, and saw an opportunity, but she took it by playing dumb. Well, I'm sure that if you say you're sorry to the other girls for whatever you've been doing, they would all forgive you. Everyone sat in silence for a moment. Then the young girl, after she caught her breath, said, but I didn't do anything. Are you saying that not being popular is my fault? Her aunt replied calmly, oh no, this kind of thing can certainly go in either direction, or both directions actually. All I meant was that in situations like this, it is best to seriously consider the possibility of my own fault first. This was a complete novelty, and the girl did not know what to say. The conversation had jumped off the script. And there's one other thing I found Her aunt volunteered. When I was a girl, I first learned that really wanting to be popular is self-defeating. People who deeply care about being popular usually aren't, and if they make it, they can't enjoy it because they're constantly worried about losing it. So if I were you, I would just forget it. Forget it, how can I forget it? Well, we have dessert to think about, and after that, I have some gifts in my suitcase. This reminds us, of, reminds us of our need to get our thoughts off of ourselves, confess our sins. Scripture says if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Let's pray and confess our sins together. Father, we confess that we've not kept charge over our own, our, over our own spirits the way we ought to have done. We've lost our tempers shown annoyance, been grasping for selfish reasons, and have been petty and unreasonable in various ways. We've been like a city without walls, defenseless and frequently overrun. We pray that you would forgive us for this and enable us to take up both sword and trowel, ready both to fight and rebuild. And so we confess our particular sins to you, our God and Father, Selah. We pray this in the good name of Jesus our Lord and amen. Amen. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace, which he made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself. As God forgives your sins here and now, he is exhibiting all his grace, but particularly his patience. This is the grace that we seek to have established in us as well. So that by the act of receiving forgiveness, we know deep in our bones that we are also extending it. You have done this. You've acknowledged this. You know it. And so I declare to you that your sins are forgiven through Christ. The text this morning is from Genesis chapter 16, verses 7 through 16. These are the words of God. And the angel of the Lord found her by a fountain of water in the wilderness, by the fountain in the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, uh, Sarah's maid, where camest thou, and whither wilt thou go? And she said, I flee from the face of my mistress, Sarah. And the angel of the Lord said unto her, Return to thy mistress, and submit thyself under her hands. And the angel of the Lord said unto her, I will multiply thy seed exceedingly, that it shall not be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said unto her, Behold, thou art with child, and shalt bear a son, and shalt call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has heard thy affliction. And he will be a wild man, and his hand will be against every man, and every man's hand against him. And he shall dwell in the presence of all his brethren. And she called the name of the Lord that spake unto her, Thou, God, seest me, for she said, Have I also here looked after him that seeth me? Wherefore, the well was called Beer Lahairoi. Behold, it is between Kadesh and Beret. And Hagar bare Abram a son. And Abram called his son's name, which Hagar bare, Ishmael. And Abram was fourscore and six years old when Hagar bare Ishmael to Abram. Let's pray together. Our Father, you've given us your word, and you've done this so that we might understand it. And through understanding it, come to understand the world around us and our own place in it. We pray that your spirit would be active in our midst this morning, teaching and encouraging us. And we ask this in the gracious name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. And amen. Amen. We've noted before that we as Christians have a responsibility to understand the times we are living in. We don't... (laughs) just have a responsibility to understand the Bible in abstraction or the Bible as it would be read in a room isolated from all human history and all events. The Bible is given to us as God's people in order that we may understand it, apply it, obey it, and apply it and obey it in the context of everything that's going on around us. Because we are doing this as forgiven sinners. We do not seek to do it infallibly. God's word is infallible, but we are responsible to fallibly apply, fallibly obey. So we don't want to, we don't want to claim that our interpretation of this event in the newspapers or that event on, on uh, some news channel, that our interpretation of that is absolutely sure and certain and that we cannot be wrong. Nevertheless, we do want to live our lives in wisdom. We want to take the light of God's Word and we want to shine it on our lives and on the lives of those around us. This said, there are many good reasons for believing that the conflict between the Christian faith and Islam will occupy a place in the 21st century that the Cold War War occupied in the 20th. The conflict between Islam and What's left of the Christian West, the conflict between Islam and the Christian faith within the West, is going to be a big deal over the course of this coming century. Christians cannot afford to neglect the issue. They cannot afford to say it's on the other side of the world, because increasingly it's not on the other side of the world at all. And we have to come to grips with the the issues that this raises. We have to come to grips with it intelligently and wisely and charitably. And, and we, we can't afford to just simply wing it on the basis, basis of our prejudices. We can't afford to neglect the issue and our first instinct ought to be, as always, what does the Bible say? What does the Bible teach about this particular topic? And how can we know that the Bible teaches it? We, you can't get a concordance, for example, and look up Muhammad. You can't get a concordance and look up Islam because Muhammad lived five centuries, six centuries after the Lord Jesus did. So we can't can't study it that way, but we're going to discover that the scriptures teach us far more about this than we might have expected, than we might have anticipated. And saying this, I want to to ask you young people, those of you who are uh, junior high and high school age, college age students, to pay particular attention to this message and the messages that will follow it, because this is going to be a much bigger part of your life than Uh, it has been for those in the lives of your parents and grandparents. Every generation has its own set of challenges. Every generation has a unique set of challenges. And the challenges that your grandparents and great-grandparents faced in the course of the 20th century are not the same challenges that you're going to be facing in the course of the 21st century. So we want to think like Christians, all of us. We don't want to think like uh, reactionary right-wing Republicans. We don't want to think like leftist, blame-America-first uh, Democrats. We don't want to. Uh, we don't want to fit into the mold, into the pattern that the world sets for us. We want to think like Trinitarian Christians. I was blessed by. Uh, St. Patrick's breastplate, as we sang it this morning, it begins with binding to himself the, the name of the Trinity and it concludes with binding to himself the name of the Trinity. And as we consider Islam a radical Unitarian faith, we're going to come to see how important Trinitarian thinking and how important Trinitarian living actually is. I read from Genesis 16, in the context of this passage is the first flight of Hagar from her mistress, Sarah. Sarah had suggested to Abram, Abram that he raise up seed by proxy. Since Sarah had not been able to uh, conceive a child, she suggested that Abram go into Hagar. And after Hagar conceived and Sarah still had not, Hagar began to put on airs. It was a, a competition and Hagar won the competition. And she began to um, lord it over her mistress, because she as she was saying i'm by her manner i 'm pregnant and you are not. I have given our Lord a child, and you have not And so Seraph obviously found this intolerable, and so she arranged to have Hagar banished. This happens twice it happens um, at this point and then it happens later in Genesis when Ishmael himself mocks the child of promise and God commands Abraham to put Hagar and Ishmael away. Not, not disinherited entirely, but put away, excluded from the line of promise. But the, in this first instance, it's very interesting what happens. An angel of the Lord comforts Hagar. Hagar is banished from the camp, and an angel of the Lord comes to her and comforts her in verses seven and eight. And this angel tells Hagar to return to her mistress and to submit to her. Verse 9. In other words, knock off the attitude, Hagar, just knock off the attitude, go back to your mistress and submit to her. In the course of this, the angel of the Lord gives a prophecy. The child, Hagar was pregnant, it was with child, and uh, in the course of this, uh, a prophecy is given that Ishmael will be an ancestor of multitudes. Verse 10. Excuse me, Hagar's not pregnant. Hagar has a child. So Hagar uh, has a child, Ishmael, who's going to be the ancestor of multitudes, verse 10. His name will, in fact, be Ishmael, verse 11. But then there is a very telling prophecy, right? It's a very telling prophecy. This Ishmael is going to be ornery. Right? He's going to be trouble. His hand will be against every man, and every man's hand is going to be against him, verse 12. His hand is going to be against every man, and every man's hand is going to be against him. He and his descendants would be a great source of conflict. And so it has been. Hagar gives birth to Ishmael, and Ishmael is a source of trouble. Now we have to be careful here. The New Testament tells us what the typology of Ishmael was all about. Paul tells us in Galatians that unbelieving Jews were the true Ishmaelites. So unbelieving Jews who prided themselves on being descended from Isaac and not from Ishmael, they were the true Ishmaelites, as Paul says in Galatians 4.24. But given the nature of typology and the nature of covenantal identification, given the nature of prophecy, we don't need to stop here. The Quran explicitly identifies Muslims as the children of Israel. Ishmael, claiming that the Kaaba in Mecca was actually built by, by Abraham and Ishmael. Um, surah 2, 122 through 127. Now, um, in the Quran, the Quran is um, a collection of surahs or, or chapters, and in the second um, surah, it is claimed that the Kaaba, the, the holy shrine in Mecca where um, Muslims uh, make uh, uh, pilgrimage was, they they claim that this shrine was built by Abraham and Ishmael together. Now, biologically, genetically, it's quite possible that Ishmael is the ancestor of the Arabic people. It's quite possible. And I would go so far as to say that it's likely. Um, Ishmael is the ancestor of the Arabic people. But we're not talking about genetics here. We're talking about covenants, because the the Islamic faith spread by power of the sword, and there are a great many Muslims in Malaysia, for example, and Indonesia, that don't have any connection whatever, genetically to Ishmael. In much the same way that uh, East Europeans who converted to Judaism in the Middle Ages don't have to have a genetic connection to Abraham to have a covenantal connection to Abraham. So, the Arabic peoples are are probably connected to Ishmael, and therefore to Abraham, genetically, but that's not the fundamental point. It's beside the point, actually. If you have a people who, for a millennium and a half, have identified themselves with Ishmael, right, Ishmael is our man, Ishmael is our father, Ishmael is our hero, Ishmael is enshrined in our sacred book as the true heir of Israel. Abraham, and he helped Abraham build this Kaaba, this um, place where we all make a pilgrimage regularly. It is not surprising that they've become spiritual Ishmael. In other words, you can't just uh, identify with someone like that without identifying with someone like that, even if they were not before. So um, we we sometimes think that the Old Testament um, assumes genetic connection is an absolute necessity. But that's not the case. Even in the first generation of the Hebrews, in the first generation of Jews, when Abraham was circumcised, when Abraham and his whole house were circumcised, there were a good many people in that first generation of Hebrews who had no genetic connection to Abraham at all. And yet they were Jews from the first, first generation down. It's not, as, it's not the case that the Old Testament says that genetic connection to Abraham or Isaac or Jacob was important in the Old Testament, but now in the New Testament it's not important. It was never important in that sense. The biblical text has always been about covenant, covenantal identification by faith, all right? Covenantal identification by faith. And this is true even when you're dealing with rebellion and sin. We are covenantally identified with Adam in our sins by faith. We, we are connected to him covenantally. We are also connected to him genetically, but the, the, the fundamental representation that Adam had of us was a covenantal uh, representation. So if we identify with Abraham by sharing the faith of Abraham, the Bible tells us that we're children of Abraham. If we identify with the wrong character in the biblical story, if we identify with uh, a sinful character or a fallen character or a difficult character, then we're going to identify by faith um, with that individual. And Paul tells us that, in effect, that this is what the Jews had done. The Jews who prided themselves on descent from Abraham and Sarah, who prided themselves on being of Isaac, were actually Ishmaelites. He says, you're spiritual Ishmaelites even though your genetic connection is from Isaac. It's the same sort of thing that, he, uh, that Paul says in Romans when he talks about Jacob and Esau. You can be a spiritual Edomite. You can be spiritually descended from Esau even if you're physically descended from Jacob. So Hagar, in the Bible, Hagar gendereth to bondage, to use, to, to use the expression of Galatians, as Saint Paul says. And another result of this, another result of identifying with Ishmael is conflict with every man a wild man, he will, he will collide with his neighbors and his neighbors will collide with him. So this is, I think, an important foundational text in Genesis 16. Not because Genesis says, and there will be this Arabic people who will arise and they will — it's not a prophecy in that sense. At the very least — or we can't assert dogmatically that it is — but at the very least uh, there's, a, uh, there's a, an example of covenantal reverse engineering here. Uh, the, the Muslims have identified themselves with Ishmael in the strongest possible way. They've identified themselves with Ishmael in the strongest possible way. And Ishmael's inheritance is therefore theirs. Now this is, a, this is something that is going to be a chastisement on them for a time. But every nation, of, every nation among men have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. And this brings us to an important qualification. We believe that Jesus Christ died for all the nations of men. And we believe that he has purchased them with his own precious blood. It's easy for us, and this is an indication of our own own tendency to focus on our own provinces. It's easy for us to say, Jesus died and with his blood he secured the salvation of the United States of America, and Canada, and Scotland, and France, and go team, go team. You know, we're, we're, we're cooking with propane now. And, and so everybody's happy with this. Everybody's delighted with this. But then we say, and Jesus died to secure the salvation of Saudi Arabia and Pakistan. Jesus Christ died to secure the salvation of nations that are built on the supposition that God has no son. All right? Jesus died for them as well. Jesus died so that they would come into the faith as well. So the fact that Jesus died for all the nations of men includes Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, Indonesia, Egypt, and Pakistan. The fact that these places are largely unevangelized thus far is not an indicator of the future. Christ will not be satisfied until all of Ishmael, genetically, covenantally, whichever way you might consider it, Christ will not be satisfied until all Ishmael is brought back into the house of Abraham truly by evangelical faith. And they are brought back into the house of Abraham by believing in the seed of Abraham, who is the Lord Jesus. And this is what it boils down to. You cannot be a descendant of Abraham biblically while rejecting the seed of Abraham. Jesus is the seed of Abraham. He is the seed of Abraham. And if you reject him, if you say, well, he's just a prophet or he's a great teacher. No, you're rejecting him as the seed of Abraham, the promised seed. Now what this means is if Jesus Christ intends to save all the nations and tribes and peoples, if that's the intent, the the lamb is worthy because with his blood he has purchased people from every nation. If that's the case, then this, it, it obviously follows from this, and I need to emphasize it over and over again. It obviously follows from this that nothing take, nothing said in this series of messages on Islam should be taken or can be taken as expressing hatred toward Muslims, all right? Christians cannot hate Muslims in that sense, because Jesus died for all the Muslim nations. He didn't die to keep them Muslim, but he died for them. And He died for them as much as He died for us. God loves the world, right? God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. So God loves the world, and if God loves the world, then so should we. If God loves the nations of men, then so should we. If God loves Muslims, then so should we. If God calls them to repent and believe in His Son, then so must we. So, I want to say at the outset that we don 't hate Muslims. this is, this is a, a, we live in hypersensitive times we live in politically correct times where any form of criticism is taken automatically as some form of hate speech. We live in hypersensitive times and it, it has become dog, dogma among secularists that in order to love a cancer patient, you have to approve of his cancer as well. All right If you disapprove of his cancer, then you are somehow committing a hate crime against him. If you disapprove of that which is destroying this person, that which has this person in bondage, that which threatens this person, if you disapprove of that, then you must have a deep-seated hostility toward that person. If, if, someone, if a patient goes to a doctor and he's, he's informed that he has cancer, um, the doctor doesn't wait and to find out if the patient regards this as good news or bad news you know, what do you want this to be? Do you want to, do you want this to be a positive, positive growth experience in your life? Or do you want to treat it as a disease? Because I'm not going to, I'm not going to catalog it as one or the other until or unless you tell me what you feel. Well, what we feel, what we feel is irrelevant here. We can love, all right? And and Christians are familiar with this cliché, and we sometimes forget that clichés embody important truths, All right? And this is a, this is a place where we love the sinner and hate the sin. You can love Muslims. You're called to love Muslims created in the image of God. And um, these are individuals upon whom Christ lays a claim and he lays a claim with his blood. So we must think of Muslim nations and Muslims individually in an evangelistic way. So we, so we uh, but, but we cannot say, well, and because I have this love for them that I must therefore approve or falsely flatter that which has them in bondage. Now, you might say, well, how can I love them? If I, if I say to a Muslim friend, if, he, if we get to this point in our relationship, and he says, do you believe that, uh, that, uh, that my religion is a false religion? And you can say, well, yes, just as you believe the same thing about me, right? You believe that I hold to a false religion, and I believe that you hold to a false religion. And if someone becomes indignant and says, you cannot, you cannot hold that I hold the falsehood and still love me, we have to reject that as radically unbiblical. No, no, you're created in the image of God. No, the, I'm, I'm authorized as a Christian to present the gospel to you, because God wants you to come to a knowledge of the truth. He, he invites us to all day long says in Romans, I've held up my hands to a disobedient people. God wants us to plead with unrepentant sinners, asking them to come, pleading with them to come, declaring that they must come. But we preach repentance and faith. We don't just preach faith. We preach repentance and faith. That means you turn away. In order to turn to Christ, you have to turn away from something else. And you have to turn away from whatever it is that's keeping you away from him. So, Muslims are held in spiritual bondage by the tenets of Islam, a false and very destructive religion, as we will see. It's a false and very destructive religion, and it really does create spiritual bondage for reasons that we will see. And it's not loving toward Muslims to pretend that this is not the case, all for the sake of political correctness. This is a topic where it is very easy for cowardice to masquerade as love and tolerance. All right? This is very easy for cowardice to masquerade as love and tolerance. Someone says, I think I'm going to draw a cartoon of the prophet Muhammad. And then he sits down to draw it. And he says, no, you know, I remember what happened last year when that someone did that. I remember what happened last year. And you know what? I think I'm going to be tolerant. I, I'm going to be loving. No, you're going to be a coward. That's what you're going to be. You're going to back. You're going to back away. You're going to blink. You're going to say, "I'm not going to mess with this." That's not tolerance. It's not love. Um, if, if a doctor, to return to the earlier example of a doctor, refused to tell a, a patient of the disease that was killing them, and he refused to, he refused to tell the patient of the disease that was killing him because he was afraid of what might happen if he, if he told them. You know, I'm afraid this is a terminal illness, and the patient's going to go crazy and blame him and, you know, do all sorts of, I'll just let, I'll just let it be. Let them die. That, that's not love. That's not compassion. That's not tolerance. That's cowardice. So, genuine love takes courage. Love does not refuse to speak the truth. How could love refuse to speak the truth? If, if someone's, if if something is destructive, if something is obviously destructive, if something is over the top destructive, you can tell that cowardice is in play when people have to think twice or three times before they say something about it. We live in times where many, many people are cowed into a a state where they they don't want to talk about this at all. And if you don't talk about it, you're not going to be able to prepare for it. And if you're not prepared for it, it's going to get worse. And when it gets worse, this is the problem with getting things getting worse. When things get worse, they get worse. Okay? They don't get easier to deal with. If you've got a problem, and you're afraid to say something because the problem is fairly advanced. And you say, well, let's just wait until it becomes extremely obvious. And then when it becomes extremely obvious, then it'll be easy to say something. No. It'll become ten times times harder to say something. When the problem gets worse, it gets worse. It gets harder to — there's never been a problem that you've encountered that has been made easier to tackle by postponing the day of reckoning. If you say, well, I've got finals coming at the end of the term, I'm, I'll, put off the day of, I'll, I'll put off all study until the day before, and then I'll be motivated. Right? Yeah, you'll be motivated and overwhelmed. You can't put off solutions to the last minute and expect the panic to give you all the impetus and motivation that you need. So love has to speak the truth as soon as love sees the truth. As soon as love sees the truth, and as soon as love sees the the, the time is right to address, it has to be addressed. (coughs) This said, I want to give you a brief history lesson uh, to sort of set the stage for what's going to come. One of the things we're going to see with this series of sermons is that Islam provides an interesting foil for the Christian faith. We're not going to be spending our time speculating with a a Bible in the room, you know, wildly speculating about what we might think about this or that. We're going to be talking about many different subjects that the Bible has a lot to say about. Islam says one thing, the Bible says another. Islam has one thing to say about women, for example. The Bible teaches something very, very different about women. Islam teaches something about Jews and Israel. The Bible teaches something very different about Jews and Israel. Um, Islam has, makes radical claims for Sharia law, uh, Quranic uh, law, law based on the Quran and Islamic interpretation and the hadiths, where the, the hadiths are anecdotes about Muhammad's life. So the Quran and these anecdotes about Muhammad's life and teaching and uh, precedent in Islamic, from Islamic jurists, that's, that makes up Sharia law, um, Muslim law. Well, Christians claim that biblical law ought to be the foundation of our society, our culture. Not just our personal lives, but uh, of our culture. So what, does this, does this mean that the Muslims want their sacred book law and we want our sacred book law and so there's no difference between this kind of Ayatollah and that kind of Ayatollah? That they want to wear red t-shirts and we want to wear blue t-shirts? Or is it something very you know, radically different? Does Sharia law engender bondage because it's from Ishmael. And does biblical law engender liberty, all right? The perfect law of liberty, as James tells us. So what we wanna do is recognize that the Bible tells us a lot about Jews, about Israel, about, about women, about the role of law, and all of these things. And we're gonna talk about these subjects in the uh, setting that the, the modern crisis of modern Islam has created. Muhammad was born around 570 A.D. He was a native of Mecca in Saudi Arabia. When he was 12, his uncle took him to Syria, where a Nestorian Christian monk prophesied over him. He said he was going to do great things. When he was 25, he married his first wife, Khadijah, in a ceremony performed by an Ebionite Christian priest, who was a cousin of his wife's. Now, this is interesting because Saudi Arabia at this time had a Christian presence. The, the Christian faith had spread throughout the Mediterranean world. It was, um, it was the religion of the, uh, of the empire. This is some years after Constantine. And in this region, the forms of the Christian faith that Muhammad came into contact with were not orthodox. The Nestorians had radical problems. The Ebionites were sort of a Judaizing um, cult, a Judaizing branch of the faith. And so Muhammad did not have, uh, did not have contact with robust, orthodox Christianity. But he did have, he did have awareness of the Christians. He knew uh, the Christians and the Jews were considered by Muhammad to be people of the book. They both had sacred scr- scriptures like the Muslims did. Fifteen years later, after his marriage to Khadijah. He began receiving his first revelations from the angel Gabriel. He, Muhammad, was at first worried about his revelations, because when he received these revelations, a fit would come upon him. He'd gnash his teeth and he'd foam and it it was a convulsive fit that came upon him. And he went into a a fit and a trance and he he would receive these revelations. He, Muhammad, was at first worried that this was demonic possession. That was Muhammad's concern, that he was afflicted with a demon. But his wife, Khadija, assured him that it was from God. Three years later he began to preach openly in Mecca about these revelations that he'd been receiving. He was rejected in Mecca. Um, Mecca at that time was a uh, a pandemonium of various uh, pagan uh, idolatries. There was a lot of idolatry, and the Kaaba, that I mentioned earlier, where, um, that supposedly built by Abraham and Ishmael, the Kaaba had idols all, over, all around it, and, and it was a center of worship at that time, but it was closely associated with the idolatry. So, he was rejected and handled roughly by his peers. He had some uh, connections in Mecca, an uncle who protected him, a monk, uh, an uncle who, who never, became a Muslim, but uh, who protected Muhammad somewhat from, these, uh, from this persecution. So he was rejected. Finally, 13 years after his first revelations, Muhammad fled from Mecca to Medina, a, a, another city in Saudi Arabia. This flight marks year one of the Muslim calendar, and the flight is called the Hijrah. Now, this is very important because the Muslims don't date their calendar from the moment that Muhammad first began receiving revelations. They, da- they date the calendar from the moment that Muhammad first acquired political power. He fled from Mecca, where he was persecuted and an outcast. He fled from Mecca to Medina, where he assumed a leading role. And this is the beginning of <coughs> this is the beginning of the Muslim calendar. At this point, his first wife had died. And it was now that — it was now in Medina that many of the distinctive features of Islam began to take shape. He had been receiving revelations for some years, but it wasn't until he fled from Mecca that many of the features of Islam that we now recognize began to take shape. It was in Medina that he married the daughter of one of his most loyal followers, a girl named Aisha, who was six years old when he married her, and he consummated that marriage when she was nine. He became, at this point, he became a marauder and a pirate, ordering attacks on Meccan caravans. In other words, Muhammad was in a mood for revenge. He'd he'd just been badly treated, uh, very badly treated by um, uh, the Meccans. There was a time there where he was, they were out in the countryside, nobody would sell them any food, not give them anything. He was, he was, he was abused. He was roughly treated. Uh, and he was not at that t- at this time. He was not a violent, um, a, a violent man, and, but he was persecuted. Once he got out of Mecca and, and consolidated his power in Medina, he began ordering these attacks on Meccan caravans. Two years later, Muhammad began ordering assassinations in order to gain control of Medina. Now. There were were Jews in Medina who opposed his rule, and so then Muhammad began ordering assassinations. These assassinations, and this is an important point, I'll I'll say this parenthetically now, um, but it's important for us to come back to and develop later. There are many aspects of the Western world that we assume are common sense. Everybody knows, and we say, everybody knows, this is just human nature. Monogamy, for example, people say, is human nature. Common sense tells you that you're just supposed to have two people, right? Common sense tells you that. No, that's not common sense. That's what God tells us in his word, right? This is a Christian value. Monogamy is a Christian value, not a common sense value. Uh, How you conduct warfare is Uh, the Geneva Geneva Accords that govern modern warfare, that you don't make war on civilians, for example. You don't pick civilian targets and make war on civilians. This is something you can trace directly back to Augustine. Augustine develops just war theory in the Christian context. And there's absolutely no reason for Muslims to follow Augustine, right? Why, Why would Muslims follow Augustine? Augustine says you don't make war on civilians. Muhammad doesn't make any such distinction. And so what we call in the western world terrorism if someone ties a bomb to him and he walks into a pizza joint in Israel full of teenagers and blows himself up and a bunch of teenagers with him we say that's terrorism and we say how do you and if someone called us on and said how do you know that's ter- why do you call that terrorism well common sense tells you that common sense tells you that it's terrorism no no it's not common sense at all it's augustine right? It's, it's a Christian tradition rooted in scripture, and Augustine's not making it up. Augustine's working with the biblical text. Muslims are dealing with a different text. They reject this distinction that we have. So consequently, you can't, you can't uh, have this, this uh, nice realm governed by liberal democracy that's rejected the Christian faith and rejected the foundation of everything that holds dear and then have someone come along and start violating it on purpose and say hey wait a minute you can't do that that's not democratic that's not the liberal way that's not the american that's not the american way to which they say so why why do we have to obey you we should obey allah so uh, when Muhammad begins ordering assassinations, this is not something that you read about in the attack biographies written about Muhammad from others. This is something that you read about in the Hadith, in the Muslim literature itself. This is not something they're ashamed of. This is something that's just part of their, this is what happened. So Muhammad began ordering assassinations, and he gained control of Medina by doing this. He took multiple wives, and finally, In 630 A.D., he conquered Mecca when he was 60. He was 60 years old, so he had been in Mecca, began receiving revelations, was persecuted for a number of years in Mecca, finally fled from Mecca to Medina. He became a marauder, a highwayman, and a pirate, sort of a guerrilla warfare sort of thing, making war on Mecca. And finally, after some years of that, he conquered Mecca again when he was 60 years old. Tribes from all over Saudi Arabia then submitted to his authority. And this is a good place uh, to mention that Islam means submission. And this is going to come out when we examine the importance of the Trinitarian faith. A Unitarian God is an ultimate loner God. A Unitarian God is the ultimate hermit. A Unitarian God is all by Himself before the creation of the world. All you have is a monad, a, a giant solitary being. This is why a Muslim cannot say God is love. A Trinitarian can say God the Father loves the Son, and the Son loves the Spirit, and the Spirit loves the Father. And God, uh, the Triune God, has been a loving family from eternity past. God is love, not God creates the world. And now he decides to be benevolent if he feels like it and not if he doesn't feel like it. If you have a Unitarian God who creates the world, the necessary relationship that you set up is that of simple, raw power. It's simple power. Do what I say or I will chop your head off. In the Quran, approximately one verse out of every eight, right, approximately on average, every eight verses is a threat of hellfire or damnation or what god will do to you if you don't simply submit all right this is a raw the quran is is a an amazing document in this respect it is it is an exercise of raw power do what i say or i'm going to destroy you there are two aspects according to islamic theology there are two parts of the world there's the house of islam the house of submission right? Those nations, those places that have submitted to this raw um, power of Allah's. And then the other house is the house of war. There's the house of submission and the house of war. And that's the way it has to be. And so tribes from all over Saudi Arabia saw that Muhammad had the momentum going with him. He'd conquered Mecca, and so they submitted to his authority. Muhammad died a few years later at the age of 64 of a fever. So, the the basic pattern was Mecca, Medina, and then back to Mecca. Before he died, after he conquered Mecca, before he died, Muhammad sent out letters all over the world. He sent out letters, for example, to the ruler of Byzantium. He sent out letters to world leaders demanding their submission. All right? this is, um, this follows inexorably from what the, fu- the fundamental premises are. There is one God, Muhammad is his prophet, and everyone in the world must do what the prophet says. So Muhammad had, had basically conquered Saudi Arabia, and from that vantage point, he demanded the world submit to him. This was not simply, if, if you had just said, uh, you know, the Meccans treated Muhammad roughly, and then so he went back and got revenge. This would be a personal revenge story of, you know, one tribal chieftain over another. And we've got that, uh, we've, we've got that kind of story that's been multiplied thousands and thousands of times in, in human history. But something was going on far beyond personal revenge. Something was going on far beyond personal revenge. Because as soon as he got personal revenge on Mecca, he didn't say, okay, now I can be the chief of Mecca, I've never had it never had it so good, and so let's just settle down and let life go back to the way it was." He had his sights on something much bigger than that. And and, and this is one of the most remarkable stories in human history. In the years following his death, the Islamic faith exploded out of Saudi Arabia, which is an unlikely place for anything to explode out of, right? Right? It's just an unlikely place for anything like this to happen. Um, It exploded out of Saudi Arabia in quite a remarkable way. The high watermark of the first great Muslim expansion ended in France just shy of 100 years later in the Battle of Tours in 732. So um, Muhammad dies in 634. The Battle of Tours in France happens in 732, just 98 years later. So when, when Muhammad writes letters to Byzantium and all these places all over and says, I demand submission to me. Everybody's saying, what kind of nut job is Saudi Arabia producing these days? What, what, kind, of, what kind of loon is this? Well, there's something going on. There was, some, there was a force behind this. Charles Martel, Charles the Hammer, turned back at that battle. I, I've called this series of sermons the, a second battle of tours because this is the sort of thing we need. Charles Martel turned back what had been up to that time an invincible force. The Muslims exploded out of Saudi Arabia, went around the Mediterranean, turned the Mediterranean into a Muslim lake. They conquered Spain. They They just conquered the whole thing. And then Charles Martel turns them back in 732, which was, by that point, a remarkable victory. Islam made it to India in the east and France in the west. When the Muslims captured Spain, they were not expelled again until the 15th century um, by Ferdinand and Isabella of Columbus fame. So they were not expelled from uh, Spain until centuries later. So the Mediterranean becomes a Muslim lake, and as one person put it, if the Nobel Prize Committee had been active in the year 1000, all the prizes would have been going to Muslims. All the prizes would have been going to Muslims. The next period of attempted Muslim expansion, into Europe was some centuries later. This is uh, fear of Muslim expansion is embedded deeply into the European psyche. And it's embedded deeply by proxy into the American psyche. And we want to be careful that we're not motivated by fear because perfect love casts out fear. We're servants of the triune God who is love. We want to be motivated by love, not by fear. But there's a, on, on an earthly level, there's a reason for this, for this fear. The next period of attempted Muslim expansion into Europe was some centuries later. The Ottoman Turks were defeated in the great siege of Malta in 1565. Uh, the Ottoman Turk, the, the Turkish Empire was governed by Suleiman the Magnificent, who was the, the world's supreme leader. We don't, we don't understand. If we think that... Um, if if our modern mentality is that Muslims are basically a backward, third world country, we're not dealing with people who are a simple, uh, simple third world tribes like you do have in some parts of South America and Africa. You'll come come across peoples who are third world and they've been third world forever. They've been third world for century upon century upon century. But the Ottoman Turks, Turkey, was once the pride of the globe. When, you're, when you look at carnal, uh, carnal externals, they had it together. They were, they, they were the unbeatable foe. They were the unbeatable foe. And they ran into trouble in 1565 at the Siege of Malta. They ran into trouble again at the Sea Battle of Lepanto in 1571. And finally they were turned back from Vienna in 1683, ironically fought on September 11th and 12th. All right, that was, the, that was the high watermark of Muslim expansion. And then they receded, and then by the next century, the 1700s, an upstart named Napoleon invaded Egypt, and, and basically, here's the problem for the, Muslim, for the Muslim psyche. If you worship Allah, and the relationship between Allah and the world is one of raw power, and if you are his servants, and if he promises, if you serve me faithfully, you will rule the world, how do, you, how do you accommodate yourself? How do you get your head around the fact that these barbarian infidels in Europe have been beating our armies and beating our navies? How do, we, how do we understand that, right? And the way they've understood it is they've said, well, we've been unfaithful to Islam. We're not true Muslims. And this has been the impetus for the return to a fundamentalist Uh, Islamic faith. We have to get back to the raw deal. We have to return to the radical, raw faith that was present in Saudi Arabia when we just had a handful of tribes and the world was uh, waiting for us. The tense relationship between Islam and Christendom was very much like the relationship between Calermon and Narnia, which is, uh, Lewis uh, knew what he was doing when he, when he, uh, wrote that out. And in our politically correct times, I'll be very interested to see what they do in the movies about Kallerman and Narnia, because Kallerman and Narnia is just a thinly veiled transparent picture of scattered free Europe against a consolidated empire, the the empire of the Ottoman Turks. That'll be interesting to watch. The Quran is not organized chronologically. And this is important for us to recognize. The the Quran is not organized chronologically, but rather the same way the letters of Paul are organized. And I'm not sure why people did this, but they, they did it. By length. All right? So, when you read the letters of Paul, the Romans is the longest, and then 1 Corinthians, you just work your way down to the short letters. So the Quran is organized the same way. It has multiple surahs, and the longest surah is the first one. Uh, or actually there's a, a prologue, a preamble, and then there's the first one and the second one and so on. And then you get down to the short little revelations. The way it's organized leads many people to think that the peace verses, and there are numerous peace verses, get along with the Jews and the Christians. And the war verses are all jumbled together. So the war verses are take off their heads, you know, kill the infidel, slay the infidel. And then there are peace verses, get along with the Jews and the Christians. And people say, well, this is just, you know, sacred books are all, always like this. We in the Christian world have the same trouble with, with Romans and Leviticus, right? How do, we, how do we sort out the flow of revelatory history and so on? It's, it's we'll let, let that, um, we'll leave that to Muslim scholars, to Quranic scholars. The problem with this is that we, there's something that Muslim scholars recognize and that we must recognize. And that is the peace verses, the get along with Jews and Christian verses are all from that first Meccan period. Remember, Muhammad was receiving revelations. And during the time in Mecca, he was being beat up. People were taking his lunch money. They were, he was being oppressed. He was being mistreated. And he wasn't a revolutionary at that time. And he, and he was saying, don't, you know, get along, that, that sort of thing. So the peace verses are from the first Meccan period, and they are abrogated by the jihad verses that began in Medina. When Muhammad left Mecca and went to Medina, and he decided that he was going to get his revenge, all the earlier take it easy verses, be at peace, when he was still trying to persuade Jews and Christians to come over to him, he said, all right, that's done. Remember, Allah is simply raw power. He can just simply Decide what we're going to do, and if he changes his mind He's the ultimate power and he can simply do that in surah 2 106 the Quran says this if we abrogate a verse or cause it to be forgotten We will replace it with a better one or one similar So Allah has the authority to just simply erase something. Okay. I told you that then that was then this is now This is what I'm telling you to do now the peace verses are all in that first Meccan period the jihad verses abrogated the peace verses, and no verses since then have ever abrogated the jihad verses. This is related to the nature of Allah, and it's quite distinct from what we receive from our triune God. Pastor Lightheart has written an essay on Islam, and he's he's argued, I think, cogently and well, that Islam is a mirror of Christendom, and in it we can see many of our own faults and failings we can see many of our own sins in Islam. I would want to argue that Islam is more like a funhouse mirror where you look in it and you see radical caricatures and distortions and that sort of thing. Um, and that is why in this series we're going to be able to clarify what the Bible actually teaches on subjects like the law. So what, what is the role of biblical law in a modern society? When we say that a magistrate ought to pay attention to what it says in Leviticus, are we doing the same thing that a Muslim is doing when he says that a modern magistrate must obey the Koran? Right, is, is, is this simply um, Mutt and Jeff? Is this simply our, our form of saying this as opposed to their form of saying this? No. Biblical law brings liberty. Quranic law, the law of Ishmael, brings bondage. We're going to talk, as I said before, about what the Bible teaches about women. The role of women in Islam, is terrible. There's no, there's no way to um, sugarcoat it. There's no way to make it nice. There's, the role of women is just simply terrible. And the Christian faith is a friend to women and the Islamic faith is not. Why is that? Well, remember what we learned about the nature of triune love and monotheistic power. You become like, as it says in Psalm 115, you become like the God you worship. If the God you worship is a do as I say or I'll take your head off God, you become like that. And when you have an authoritative relationship, what are you going to do? You're going to, you're going to oppress your wife. A man who's in an authoritative relationship with a woman is going to oppress her if he serves a God like that. A man who serves the triune God of scripture is told and confronted with husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. How is Christian authority exhibited? Christian authority is exhibited. And here's the difference. Christ, as a prophet, died for his people. Muhammad commands us to kill. Christ dies. Muhammad kills. Christ heals the cripples. Muhammad makes cripples. He chops off the hands of thieves. He he makes cripples and Christ heals the cripple. And this is related directly to whether or not you worship the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's not just a mantra that we use. That's not just our little formula. The triune nature of God is absolutely fundamental to living in peace with one another. It's absolutely fundamental to that. We need to study. What, what does the Bible say about Zionism in the land of Israel and dispensationalism that's so popular in uh, evangelical circles and, and the Jews? What is our relationship to the Jews uh, over against the intense anti-Semitism of Islam? And submission to authority. And we will do all of this as baptized Trinitarians. I want to end on this note. It says in the Great Commission that we are baptized into the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We are baptized into the being of the triune God. We are baptized into God. We worship the triune God from inside. We've been brought into fellowship with him. We are living within him. We are in Christ. And Christ is the second person of the Trinity. And we worship the Father in the name of Jesus. And we do that because we are baptized into the name of the triune God. This means that instead of having a distant God with us far away and us sort of shouting to be heard, hoping that this God of power will hear our prayers, which he may or may not do. Instead of that, we who were once far off, as Paul says, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Let's pray together. Our Father and God, we are praying to you now in the name of Jesus and in the power and grace of the Holy Spirit. We pray that this would not just be part of our liturgical formula, but rather that we would grow up into what it means to be worshipers of the triune God. We know and confess that we will not begin to understand what is going on in the culture around us unless this happens, and we, hum- and we humbly ask you to teach us. We pray this in the good name of Jesus our Lord, and amen. Thanks for listening to this week's edition of the All of Christ for All of Life podcast. That was a message from our audio collection titled, Christianity and Islam. If you'd like to hear the rest of the talks, you can purchase them at canonpress.com.